You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Acts 15, verses 1 through 11. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, they arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they created great joy among all the brothers. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done for them. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, we are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testifies to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Why then are you now testing God by putting on the disciples' necks a yoke that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. As the kids make their way out, I'm Chad. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Aaron. Uh, of King's Cross, and we're so grateful to be here with you this morning. Like we've mentioned, celebrating uh, the hard work that was put in by some of our students who were able to walk across the stage and collect that diploma that uh, we are enthusiastically celebrating here today as well after service. So we're grateful to be here. We're grateful to be in God's Word, and I'm thankful to open up to Acts 15, where we're going to be this morning. And I encourage you to do so. We'll have some text on the screen, but if you can follow along where you are, it's going to be very helpful because there's a lot happening in this story. There's a lot happening and going on. It's an incredibly important question being asked. And we've seen for a time now, as we walk through Acts, we typically go through books of the Bible. And, and we've been walking from beginning of Acts 1, and the, the gospel has been going out. The church has been growing. The kingdom has been advancing. And all of a sudden, there's this turn where, as the Jews have been rejecting the Messiah, or as the Jewish people have not been totally embracing this King Jesus, we see that Paul, and first even with Peter, God is inspiring his people to take that gospel to nations that aren't Jewish. They're not Israel. The Gentile nations. And we've talked about the fact that for many of us who are here today, that's the reason that we can call Jesus King. Because the gospel is not alone for Jewish people. It's not an ethnic gospel. It's not an ethnic religion. It's not a nation-based or birth-based, race-based. It is for all people. And so we're coming to a very important question because as this is happening, there are parts of the Jewish people who are accepting Christ but are not just not knowing what to do with these new Gentile people that are coming into the kingdom that they're fellowshipping with, that they want to fellowship with. And so the ultimate question that's being presented here is what exactly is required for our salvation? 
What is it required for us to do at all for our salvation? And so it's an important question for us as believers because we have to consider what is the basis for our salvation as those who put our faith and trust in Christ. And what do we need to do, if at all, to earn it? And it's also the basis for where we look and judge others who come to Christ. So as we look at this question this morning, if you're an unbeliever, it's also a question for you to ask, what exactly is it that the church is requiring from me? What is a misunderstanding that's being applied to the gospel and God? What is this trope that is often seen throughout our culture that has this very angry God who's old and sitting on his throne and just waiting for us to stumble and fall? Is that the God of the Bible? And do I just need to heed his every word and follow his every command word by word so that I might enter the kingdom by some skin of my teeth? So as we address this text this morning and see what this council of early church fathers come together and how they resolve it, let's pray that God's spirit be with us because we need him. Father, I'm thankful this morning that we get to open up your word. I'm thankful that we get the chance to hear from church history, from the people who you have inspired to show us your, your grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And God, I pray as we look through this council and as we consider the way that you have inspired and led them, God, that it might change us and affect us today, that we might walk out of this place with a new, enduring love and affection for the beauty of Christ and who you are as you've loved us in him. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning first, because it is something of a little bit of a contested passage, if you will. There's a lot going on. I want to walk through it and take some time to actually consider what is the, who are the characters? What are they discussing? What is the debate? What is the um, discussion about? And what are the conclusions that are, that are come to and why? So look at Acts 15, verses one, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to begin reading there from the beginning of the chapter. And we're going to be through the entire chapter of 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. Now, as is Luke's custom, he gets right to the point very quickly and summarizes exactly what's happening. And there's a lot more going on in the background, but essentially he's telling us that there are some people from Judea that are coming to these new believers and, is tr and trying to tell them exactly this, unless you become circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. This is going to be a requirement. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't like it. Paul and Barnabas are arguing with him. Paul and Barnabas have been engaging in discussions and debate, and, in, and they are appointed by this new church, this area, to say, hey guys, go back to Jerusalem, talk, talk amongst these leaders, these apostles, and you guys decide what exactly is the outcome of this argument. What is it we should understand about God here? Now, this is not to place any additional, I think we should look at this text and not say, oh, these crazy circumcision people, okay? Like, uh, how dare they all of a sudden throw some extra stuff on, the, on, on God's grace and, and on the gospel? We understand on the back end of that, but you have to have an appreciation for who they are and where, where they're coming from because they have lived in Jewish culture for so long and to be God's people you had to follow the law 
Anybody who was a Gentile who came into the fellowship of the synagogue would have had to have been circumcised. They would have had to have an outward appearance of the covenant that God first gave to Abraham. And then they would have had to adhere to the law. So this is not new. I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing, as we rightly do, that this is not God changing his, his decision on how he's going to exactly save people, but it's a continuation of what God has planned from the beginning. So if this is just an extension of God, why is he all of a sudden not requiring the circumcision? Hey, you guys need to do this too. This is God's required from the beginning. Now, it's a little bit unique here because it's not actually something God required from the outset with Abraham. When we go back and see God call Abraham in early in Genesis, now Genesis 7, 8, he calls Abraham out and Abraham by faith follows after God, but he doesn't actually require circumcision until chapter 12. I mean, how long was that? He's sitting there following him along and all of a sudden God says, hey, this is a sign outwardly of the covenant. And that's exactly what it is. We have to understand that in this situation, God's calling out a nation of people that are marking them outwardly and physically by some marker initially, in addition to all the other ways that they just live strange among, among the nations. I mean, the way they like trimmed their beard, the way they did all kinds of stuff, was just marking them out so that God could say, this is my unique people and I want people to see it. Okay. So now they send Paul and Barnabas up to argue and discuss this. Verse three, when they've been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the details, the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Now, now this is an interesting contrast, isn't it? When he goes back, what he's doing is passing through the churches that, have, that are Gentile primarily churches, a lot of them, have accepted Christ, they're in the faith, they're in the church, and when he tells them what's going on, the, Judea, the people from Judea say, whoa, 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 that's cool, but they also need to be circumcised. The people in Phoenicia and Samaria are celebrating. They're enthusiastic. They're, they're, there's great joy to all the brothers and sisters because they see God at work. They're not blinded and, 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 and held back by illegalism, if you will, something that they can't get past to celebrate, but rather they celebrate the evident work of of God because Paul and Barnabas describe in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and they say there's no other way we can, we can explain this but God himself at work. Verse four, they arrive in Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. Again, same thing. They come to Jerusalem and they report, but what's the response? But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, hey, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It's again, some of the same people and they specifically describe them as Pharisees. And I think it's important for us to recognize this is not just antagonistic Pharisees like we see when Jesus is on earth because they are clearly welcome into the church. These are evidently Pharisees that have converted to Christianity. There are those who have converted over to follow Jesus as Messiah. Because they, they have no problem with the resurrection of the dead. That's actually an issue with other places within Judaism. But the Pharisees are like, we believe this occurs. Hey, Jesus fits the bill. We'll follow after him. But we still got hangups. And, and again, I mentioned, don't judge them too hard. They have years and centuries of teaching that this is the way you follow after God. 
this is the way you show you're his people. So they're, they're in there, in some respect, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to apply what they understand to be a faithful follower of Judaism and now apply it to those who are Gentiles and say, hey, you got to do this too. So what does the council decide? The Jerusalem council in verse 6 start meeting and the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them this, brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Now Peter is referring to Cornelius. And this particular story is interesting because when Peter is first visited in a dream to go after and speak to Cornelius, I'm not going to get into detail about it. You can go back and read this earlier in Acts. God essentially tells him, hey, don't, don't call something unclean that I say is clean. And then all of a sudden Cornelius comes to him, which would be a Gentile and not Jewish and clean, if you will. And Peter starts talking to him because Cornelius and his family are asking about this. I want to know what this dream means myself. I had one. What is this about? Who is Jesus? And Peter's talking to him about it. And the interesting thing here is the way that Peter describes it in retrospect. At the time, it's almost like Peter's just kind of beating around. He's just te- he's talking to him about it. And God says, fine, I'm giving him the Holy Spirit. I'm doing this. Because they believe you're not telling them, you're not giving them the Holy Spirit, if you will. You're not the one that's doing this. I am, and I'm going to show you that I have gone beyond Judaism. I've gone beyond Israel, and I'm saving the nations. And it starts here. And so he gives the Holy Spirit, and Peter in this passage says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Spirit, just like he did for us. God's the one that knows their heart. God's the one that knows if they're worthy. God didn't tell them you need to be circumcised. God didn't tell them you need to do the law. He says, you have faith, you believe, here's my spirit. It's not actually unique to the New Testament that this kind of transformation is only on the outside, like circumcision, like they're talking about. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10 references people being circumcised in their heart and not being stiff-necked that the outward expression should be a change inward. In Deuteronomy 30, he actually says that God will be the one that circumcises the hearts of his people. And in Jeremiah, again, he, he, he directs and edifies his people to circumcise their hearts, to not just be outward expressions of who God is, to not only be God's people outwardly, but to change inwardly. And it's the same idea that Paul carries into Romans chapter 2, when he says that circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision, meaning that the inward law that you're following, the breaking of the law means that whatever outward physical appearance you have of holiness means nothing. Because it's the heart that God's after. In verse 28 of that same chapter, he says, for a person who is not a Jew and who is one, who is one outly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh, but on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. The, that person, praise, is not from people, but from God. 
The same thing Paul's telling us, that God is the one who confirms the heart, that it's by his spirit inwardly that changes a person, that it's the faith that they show that now God has confirmed their belief by giving them the Holy Spirit. And Peter continues in verse nine. He made no distinction between us, the Jewish people, and them, cleansing their hearts by what? By faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. That's settled. Matter of fact, it's so settled, it says the whole assembly was quiet. I mean, Peter, guys walked with Jesus, the guy that saw Cornelius changed. He says, guys, God has testified to their faith by giving them the Holy Spirit. And why are we trying to put something on them? He says this, a yoke that even we couldn't bear. It's important to note that he's not saying that God's law is a yoke and a weight because actually all throughout scripture, the law of God is, is actually described the opposite. Read Psalm 119. It's a whole psalm celebrating the law. What he's saying is it was not the law that was our salvation. The law was not our hope. We didn't take on that circumcision in order for us to be something changed before God, but rather to be a testimony outward of what God was doing in us. That's the yoke that was bared. When Jesus talks to the scribes, he says, you try to heap on all these extra laws on people. You yoke them. You put weight on them. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Because as Peter tells them, Jesus didn't come to save people who were good enough. Jesus didn't come to save people when they did the right thing. Instead, they were saved through the grace that was given through Jesus, a free and unmerited gift, one that we could never earn. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul because now Barnabas and Paul are testifying and describing all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Listen, Peter told them that the Holy Spirit was evidence of God's work in these people and Paul and Barnabas confirmed. They said, all the things we have seen God do is clearly him. And after they stop speaking, this is when James stands up. And James, if you're not familiar, is the brother of Jesus himself. And James stands up and is a very Jewish Jew, okay? My man knows the law. Okay, he's, he's, he's very clear on what the scripture teaches. Matter of fact, I appreciate the fact that he goes straight to some Old Testament text to prove his point. And he stands up and he says this, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened. By the way, Simeon is Peter's Jewish name. So he's trying to be super Jewish in this statement. He's even going back to, hey, Brett, you might know this guy as Peter. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people from his name. Simeon just told you that God intervened in the case of Cornelius and other cases to take a people for his name. 15, and the words of the prophets agree with this. As it is written, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek 
the Lord. That's all the other non-Jewish people. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who make these things known from long ago. So James actually does a few things. I already mentioned he refers to Peter by his Jewish name. He also refers to the Gentiles as being called out as a people. That's, that's a, a term that's often reserved and always almost reserved for the Jewish people, a people for God's name. But interestingly enough, it's the word that's used for Gentiles in Zechariah 2, the Old Testament, where the Gentiles are said to be a part of God's people in the last days. And then immediately James goes to quote Amos 9, 11 through 12 with some allusions in Jeremiah and Isaiah saying that God has intended from the beginning to rebuild his people and to bring all the nations into his house. James is laying it out. He says, listen, what we're seeing is what God already planned to do. And nowhere in these Old Testament texts is it says to bring all the people in, just make sure they're circumcised. No, it says that God's going to rebuild them and they're going to seek him and bring in Gentiles who are called by his name. So what does James conclude? Verse 19, therefore in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses had had those proclaimed him in every city and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Now this is an interesting passage. It really is, this particular passage, because all of a sudden he says, we don't want to put additional difficulties on them and the Gentiles, but how about, by the way, here's four things they should do. Yeah. Right? Okay? <laughs> Let's not put burdens, but hey, four things. I got four. Now here's where the controversy comes. Controversy comes, is he suggesting that these are the four things we think they need to require to do because it's salvation-based. No, I think clearly from the context, they're throwing that out. This has nothing to do with salvation. The other thing, are these the only four things that Gentiles are supposed to do? Hey guys, we're Gentiles, so just abstain from sexual immorality. Don't do anything polluted with idols and make sure not to eat blood. Don't worry, I've been told that eating a steak medium rare is not blood, that's something else, so you're good. All right, if you like that. No, in fact, what's going on here is a little bit more of a, I don't want to say a compromise, um, but, but a, a meeting, if you will. This conversation is about fellowship. Can, can the Jewish people, can a Jewish person be in fellowship at the table with a Gentile who is living an impure life? Okay? And, and the reference later in this particular, in verse 21, that he makes to Moses being proclaimed is there's a sense in which he's assuming the moral law. There's a, they, they know the Ten Commandments. The question at hand is circumcision isn't a moral issue. It's a ritual issue. It's an outward expression issue. And so what James is telling them is, here's a way for us to make sure we can come together at the table. You need to make sure you're avoiding everything polluted by idols. Don't eat meat by idols. Don't go out and do things around idols. You're, you're, you're God's people now. You need to remain sexual, sexually moral. 
all the temptations around you in this world are going on, especially pertaining to idol worship, you need to avoid those things, to remain pure so that fellowship between you and the Jews can be clear and without any conditions or without any hindrances. And then from eating anything that's been strangled and from blood, the same thing. In some ways, this is a, a way for them to ask the Gentiles, hey, for fellowship among God's people and all of us, you need to restrain yourself from some of these things. Sexually moral, that applies by, by the moral laws. That's like not a compromise. That's a you need to avoid. But in general, this has to do with rituals and cleanliness. But then he also, in some respects, trusts that they will continue to grow and learn in the law because, hey, Moses is being proclaimed in every city. And we can trust these Gentiles to the reading of God's word. So he sets down a few things of encouragement. He puts together a letter, or the whole council does. And the apostles and the elders of the whole church decided to select some men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. Now I got no basis for this, but I got a figure. If the guy's name is Judas, he probably likes to go by Barsabbas. <laughs> it's interesting that he's like Judas, who everybody calls Barsabbas because Judas, you know. Um, it's a popular name, but obviously we don't use it a lot in the church today. Um, and so in this case, these guys and Silas, leading men, they go down and they take a letter. And what's the letter say? Well, it summarizes their findings from the apostles, the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, right out of the gate to those who are believers. Man, brothers and sisters, I didn't have this in my notes, but... What a family God's bringing together from all people and all nations. We have no relation whatsoever outside of the cross. Greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization, hey, by the way, we didn't send them, went from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. I think I find out I have faith and that means I'm saved. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, by the way, you also need to be circumcised. I'd be troubled too. It's a troubling thing. What is this? We have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you with your dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, someone you're familiar with, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas who will personally report the same things by words of mouth. Hey, these guys are gonna confirm what Paul and Barnabas have already been telling you and that we've all decided. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. Abstain from the food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Again, Judas and Silas and Paul and Barnabas are fleshing this out and explaining and talking about what I'm saying. Hey, these are ritual things. It's actually Leviticus 17 and 18. It's basis for beginning to, be, to learn the law. You follow these basic things. And what's the outcome of the letter when they receive it? Verse 30, they sent off, they were sent off and went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered this letter to the people. And when they read it, the Gentiles rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message and after spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word. The mission went on. Because now they've encouraged the brothers. They said, hey, we've cleared the air. There's no additional requirement for the law. There's no additional requirement from God that says you need to have these particular outward expressions of your life. 
these are some directions we can give you that are good for you in the community to begin to follow after Jesus, and you'll grow from there. But be encouraged, follow Christ, love the brethren, and press on. That's how it wraps up. So what do we take out of that? I don't think any of us in here are necessarily wrestling with the question of circumcision. Even the strangled blood. I probably, maybe you're thinking you couldn't eat a medium steak, but I'm telling you, rare, medium, it's fine. But there are some things that are important for us to draw out on how and why they came to these conclusions. And also how that applies for us in our day-to-day life. And to recognize the way we're affected by some of the same things that are impacting the church here. See, as they're looking at the church, one of the reasons they came to the conclusion they did, because they are resolved to recognize that God has shown great grace to us in Christ. Immeasurable grace. That he wouldn't lay a burden on his people. And then also because of that, they wanted to live out in grace. That grace is shown to us in Christ, it works its way in our hearts, and then should be overflowing to the world around us and the way that they live. Let's look at the two primary things I'm, I want to look at in these texts are first, that God has shown great grace to us. How does he do that? How do we see it evident in this text? Well, first, it's through salvation by faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. In verse 9, Peter says he made no distinction between us, cleansing their hearts by faith. In the end of verse 11, he says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. It's entirely by grace, and we believe that to be true, and God showed us that by the way he saved them because there was nothing they had done to merit it. They just showed up and said, hey, I had a dream, Peter, and all of a sudden they got the Holy Spirit because it was the faith that God knew they had on the inside that merited, if you will, or that God granted the grace to save them. Now I use that phrase because, and I said merited, but honestly, is faith something of merit? To show faith in something, to believe something? Grace is a gift. To be a gift has to be a completely free and unmerited gift. I mean, for us to even think that we could say, we looked in that Ephesians passage earlier. It says, by grace are you saved through faith, exactly this. It's not yourself. It's not from works. Or you could boast. But, but, but listen, I was smart enough to believe, right? That's how that plays, right? I saw the options on the table, and listen, I didn't get the highest grades in school, but I felt like Jesus was a better one. Is it, is it smarts? Is it intelligence? Is it us and ourselves that see this? Or even is that faith grace? That God would even grant us the ability in ourselves to believe in him. You know, actually, the idea that faith being a merit or a work is something that Piper, John Piper, is a theologian and former pastor, wrestled with in an article he wrote way back when. It was mid-1900s. No, 1976. (laughs) He actually wanted to go to an example when he argued this question, this conversation about what faith really is, and he gave a couple illustrations, and I want to read one of those to you. 
He says, picture yourself as a murderer condemned to death and awaiting execution. You're guilty and everyone knows it. You deserve to die. And then you get a letter from the president of the United States, which says that he has, by his sovereign power, decided to remit your sentence and let you go free. The reasons he gives for his decision is not that any new evidence has turned up, but rather he simply wants to demonstrate to everyone his power in this declaration of mercy and to transform your disregard for his laws into a humble adoration of his merciful sovereignty. He calls your attention to this, his seal on the letter, and he instructs you to simply show it to the warden who will then let you go free, no questions asked. This is a part and happens on a regular basis. So you call the guard, you show him the letter, you get a hearing with the warden. As you enter the warden's office, you smell the fresh air of life and liberty blowing in his window, and you see the tops of trees and a kite flying beyond the wall. You hand him the letter, and he reads it. And without a query, he orders the guard to get your things. As you leave the gates, you turn to look at the massive prison and rows of windows where, there has been, where you have been, uh, had been an hour before. And then you start running and jumping and shouting and laughing and telling everyone, the president let me out. The president let me out. Only one thing obligated the president, his own honor. Insofar as he was committed to maintaining his own honor, it was morally impossible for him to refuse the favor that he had promised. In other words, there was something so valuable to him that he was obligated to reward namely his own good name. Faith is symbolized by the response of the prisoner. On what basis could he, with any assurance, lay claim to the promise of freedom? No use of the term merit or deserve in our ordinary experience would justify the prisoner saying to the warden, hey, I deserve freedom because I brought you this letter. Nor could he properly say, my act of bringing you this letter is an act so valuable to the president that he is therefore obligated to free me. The statement completely contradicts the dynamics of the situation. The prisoner may say one thing, our merciful president has sent me a letter of remittance and I believe that his faithfulness to his word and his commitments to his own honor is so great that in spite of my guilt, he will certainly do what he said. God places his name on the line. The riches of his grace and kindness are in question. And when Paul talks in Ephesians 2 of the state of our hearts and our lives before God, before his mercy, his rich mercy is shown towards us in Christ. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, But God, who is rich, in mercy because of his great love he had for us he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses you were saved by grace he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus and this is the verse that tells why he does it so that in the coming ages he might display immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus this is the exact reason that Paul appeals to God's graciousness in Christ when he says that if God has given us his own son, what else would he hold back from us? That by no means have you ever merited the grace that he demonstrates in salvation. 
but to just simply trust that he's a God good enough to save and powerful enough to do it. The good news of the gospel is not only that God has offered us salvation in Christ, but we are also continuing to be saved by the way he transforms us by the power of his spirit. So God has shown his immeasurable grace by his salvation, his grace through faith, but also through his spirit and his word. Look where this shows up in the text. In verse eight, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by doing what? How did he bear witness? By giving them his Holy Spirit as he also did to us. Brothers and sisters, all of us who have claimed the name of Christ, if you have truly placed your faith in him, he has placed his spirit in you. That's not a small thing. The council comes together and has confidence that they can, as God's people, come to a faithful determination because the same spirit is at work in all of them. The reason as a church we believe in and practice membership the way we do is because we are entrusting the power of the spirit in each one of us as faithful members of this church to guide the wisdom of our church into the future. That it's not power that's residing simply in the man that stands at the pulpit or in Aaron who gives announcements and preaches. Just today, being up here at the podium or even singing doesn't mean they're the ones with the power. It's God's people and his spirit in us that leads and guides us. That's an incredible grace. In the Old Testament, it was promised. That's what we saw at Pentecost. That in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on my people and they will prophesy. They will have wisdom from heaven. And you might push it back. You might ignore it. You might quench it. But God has promised to speak to his people. And we should obey and follow him because it's an amazing gift. It's a beautiful gift that God not only doesn't want to force you to be something, or to make you appear a certain way, but rather to change you from the inside by the leading of his spirit. And we not only have the testimony of his spirit, but we have the testimony of his word. That's what James leans into, remember? He says, by prophets, he has told us this thing would come. And our, your spirit testifies that God's at work in these people, and you, you know that God's gracious enough to do it. And if he said that he would in his word through the prophets of old, and if he has demonstrated his power and his spirit today, then who are we to put any kind of a yoke or burden on what God's trying to do? That's what they're appealing to. That's why we walk up here Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and we open up the word that God's given to his people. Because we believe that God can speak today through his living word and that his spirit today still works and moves in his people to change them by his grace. So if God's so gracious that he gives us salvation by faith alone, if God's so gracious that he pours out his spirit to his people, if God's so gracious that he would give us his word as a, a guide and, and, and testimony to who he is, then what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? This is the question that Paul asks. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
So when God has shown such grace towards us in Christ, that grace should be at work in us as children of God and disciples of Jesus. And that same grace should show itself overflowing from us towards others. So not only has God shown us his great grace through, uh, in us, but God shows his great grace through us. Look at these verses. He shows it through our grace and our convictions. What is the response that the, that the Jerusalem council has when they find out that there's extra burdens they're trying to place? Well, in verse 19, they say, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, this is an interesting place that I'd like to pause for a minute because I want to be clarifying about what I mean by our convictions. If God has given his word and his spirit, and yet we are still people who are growing and changing to be more like him and struggling against sin in our own lives, inevitably, we all have different opinions from time to time. Is that fair? I mean, all the denominations out there tell you? Is that evidence enough? Okay. At King's Cross and in churches throughout history, we hold that there are some core things about the gospel in Jesus that separate and signify a believer. Someone who, to know that God himself looked on the, John 3, 16, loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. That's one of them. Okay? There are primary things, but there are also a lot of secondary and what we'd say are tertiary or third things that are not that as important. I'm going to use that word very, they're not as important. And they're things that could even rise to the level of us dividing, but there are certain times, and I have grown up in certain areas, and many of you may have, where you have maybe been in a setting where that church made everything the main thing. Okay? And I will tell you, I've become more and more convicted that that is a traumatic experience that we internalize and have to overcome throughout our life. At some point. I mean, there's some things that have been the main thing for you growing up that you struggle when you see other people participating in those things. You say you're a Christian. Here's one that was popular for a while. For my, all my aunts had to wear dresses all the time. Yeah? Is that a main thing? Is it a wisdom thing? That's the debatable part, right? There's also debate around things like alcohol consumption within the church. There's debates around music that's played. But there's some settings where they take every single thing you do and it becomes the main marker for whether or not you're a faithful follower of Christ. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was once a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said that he grew up in a legalistic home where the use of fingernail polish was enough to condemn one to hell. He said once, he was quoted as saying, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946, but in 1982, I am still wrestling with it emotionally. So here's my charge to us as God's people who have seen God's immense grace. We can have personal convictions, but we need to show grace to other people great grace when they don't share the same convictions we do legalism can have a certain traumatic effect I've even thought of myself sometimes from time to time withholding myself from putting on a show and raising my hands now it's become a little bit it's much easier now in my life but because 
I would reflect in my own heart. Like, am I really being holy? Should I raise my hands? Am I in a good place? Should I be doing that? And I'm going to share a conviction with you that I've had about that very same thing. And this might seem a really odd wrestling to do, so I'm trying to be transparent and honest about my own life. I don't raise my hands because I'm worthy. I raise my hands to worship because he is. And there are challenges in Scripture about us not doing things empty and vain in our worship. But if it's not vain, then raise your hands and throw them up to the ceiling. And praise the one who is worthy of all our praise. Secondly, I want to encourage us to show grace in our freedoms. When it says something in this particular passage about Moses being proclaimed in every city and every Sabbath, remember that James has encouraged them to follow some basic laws or some basic uh, fellowship uh, regulations. And part of the reason for that that I said earlier was because to create an opportunity for fellowship between people. Now it's interesting that he points to things polluted by idols. And in the actual letter, he references the idea of abstaining from food offered to idols. But later in one of Paul's letter, he says, that's not a big deal. But in the context of him exactly saying that to the Corinthian church, he says this. He says, it's not a big deal for you to participate, but it is a big deal if you offend and cause a weaker brother to stumble. Not everyone has this knowledge. This is verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat, and we're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Paul is encouraging you to restrict what you believe to be your freedom for the sake of a brother and sister. And he so strongly connects it that he says that if you sin against them, you are sinning against Christ. We need to show grace to others, not only in the convictions that we hold, but we need to be gracious towards others in the freedoms that we believe God's given us. We can use wisdom to do things like enjoying meat offered to idols here in this context, maybe listening to some classic rock like I would in my car. Some people might have a problem with that. I'm sorry, I just made it, I used an example. I can make you stumble. But in serious context, we should consider that. Whether it be the consumption of any food, the consumption of, of any beverage, of anything that we do, and what's interesting about this conversation is even after Paul and Barnabas argued and fought with the Pharisees, in the very next story with Timothy, you know what he had Timothy do? He said, salvation does not require circumcision, but Timothy, you're not circumcised, so you need to be circumcised. And it says it's because they were about to go into Jewish communities who knew he was a Greek and he didn't want to have any stumbling block for the gospel. Third and finally, 
we need to show great grace in our disagreements. Now I'm stepping over past this story into the end of Acts 15 to look at one incident that occurs immediately after this and it's between Paul and Barnabas. The tag team, the dream team, if you will, that have been winning the Gentiles to the gospel. And in this particular passage, it says that they came to a head in a disagreement. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Great idea, let's go revisit. And Barnabas says he wanted to take along John who was called Mark. Earlier in this, in this story of Acts, we see that John Mark has been with Paul and Barnabas. And when he came to a certain point, we, don't, we aren't giving specifically why, he says, I'm not going any further. The suggestion is it was going to be too tough for him. He was, it was more than he wanted to commit to. And so the way that Paul interprets it in verse 38, he says he doesn't want to take along this man who deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with him to the work. 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul and Silas departed after being committed by the brothers. And he traveled through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the churches. He went on to the mission. Now, why do I even reference this passage as we close? Because there are some things that have to do with convictions about doctrinal issues that I'm encouraging you to both show grace in your convictions and show grace with your freedoms. But there's also times we're going to disagree and it has nothing to do with doctrine. Nothing about the church. As much as possible for you, live peaceably. But even Paul and Barnabas split ways. I'm not gonna cast a judgment on who was writing this, but I just encourage us in this way. Paul doesn't go around dragging Barnabas' name. It doesn't at least say that. Matter of fact, later on, Paul reunites with John Mark, the guy he rejected to come with him in the first place. Paul and Barnabas knew they had come to a head and they weren't gonna see eye to eye on a circumstance. As they said, it's better for us to go ahead and split ways and let's not cause a riff and continue to fight about this. You go yours, I'll go mine. But both of them went on to be faithful brothers serving the church. Brothers and sisters, it's possible for us to have disagreement and still be faithful Christians. It's possible for us to have disagreement and still continue to follow after the mission. It's absolutely critical of us to have disagreements and show grace. To be kind and loving towards one another. Because if God has demonstrated such great grace to us in Christ, that should overflow in the life we live. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, you've demonstrated amazing and immeasurable grace. Father, you are God, your character and your name is on the line. You have said it before us that your desire is to show the world your immeasurable grace in Christ through the way you love your people. And we are a ragtag group if there ever was one. Jews and Gentiles coming together, old and young, every nation, race, and tongue of every background and conviction. And God, you knit us all together as one under one Lord and King with one spirit. 
Father, I pray that we continue to be changed day after day by the Spirit of God that lives in us. And God, if there's any of us not here today that don't know that grace in you, God, I pray you convict their hearts that they might see the grace you've shown us in Christ. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.